Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Hey, I want to tell you a story this morning. Story about a company that was looking to hire a new employee, and the manager of the company decided that he wanted to put a, a help wanted poster out on the window out in front of their shop so that as people went by, they could see that they were now hiring. So, poster read like this it said, Help wanted hiring a new employee. And it listed some of the qualifications for the job. It said, You have to good, have good computer skills, you have to have good interpersonal people skills, you need to be bilingual if you're going to apply for this job. And then at the bottom, it said very clearly, bold letters, that is an equal opportunity employer. And their hope was, you know, in the next day or so, surely, in a busy area, somebody would come by, see the sign, and they could really quickly find a new employee for their company. So put the sign up. The next day, a a dog is walking down the street. And as he comes past this building, he looks up and notices the sign. It's not there every day. He notices the sign and takes interest and pushes the door open with his head and kind of enters into the business complex. And the person at the front goes, oh, what a cute puppy. Look at you. And the dog goes over to the sign and barks at the sign. And they go, oh, oh, I see. I I apologize. I I didn't understand you were here for the job. And this is a made-up story, by the way. I just want to make sure that we're clear about that. (laughs) And so they take the dog into the manager's office and sit the, the dog down in front of the manager and say, sir, this dog's here to apply for the new position that we're hiring for. And the manager's going, my goodness, I, I can't hire a dog. This is ridiculous. People will laugh. What will people say if we hire a dog to work for our company? And the dog hops down off the chair and goes back out to the front. And the manager follows him up there. And he goes up to the sign where it goes, equal opportunity employer, and puts his paw right there on the poster. And the manager goes, well, you got me there, so let's go in and we'll do an interview. I can't hire a dog for our company. So he starts walking through the job qualifications of what it takes to have this position. And he says, well, you got to understand something here, dog. To work for our company, you must have good computer skills. We're high tech around here. And the dog hops off the seat and goes over to a side table where there's a computer set up. With his paws, just types up and press send and sends an email to the boss. Ding! Boss opens up his email and it's a beautifully well-written professional letter written by this dog to him. And he's amazed. He's going, this is incredible, but I can't hire a dog. So listen, dog, I understand you've got some skills with computers, but I don't know if you read the sign. It says you have to have strong interpersonal skills. We all work together as a team and you need to work well with our team. And I just don't know if you can do that. The dog goes back out to the front, manager follows him and goes up to someone standing in the front and just kind of leans in and goes, like this. Person reaches down and scratches his ear and and then the dog just looks at the manager like, so? And the manager goes, yeah, I can see there's a bond forming. You got me there. But, But you know what? On the sign, it said you have to be bilingual to work for our company and I just don't know if you're gonna have that skill. And the dog looks at the manager for just a moment and then said, And so promptly, the dog was hired for the position. Was it as bad as you thought it would be when I started? Yeah. I know it's a ridiculous story, but there's a, there is a reason. I'm going to try to make it connect in some way. Let me figure it out real quick. Okay. There is a reason I tell you this story. The, the part of the text we're looking at today in 1 Timothy is a job description. 
It is a, it's a leadership role in the local church. And there's a posting for this job. It talks about what the job is. It gives the qualifications for the job. It says that this isn't just a job out for anyone to grab. It's not just something to, if you on a whim, go, hey, that sounds like fun. I'll try that out for a while. But it's a job that is to be looked at soberly and with all seriousness and with a great uh, deal of faithfulness towards the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in this role. And so this morning, we'll look at this. Paul, again, is writing in our pastoral epistle series to Timothy and to Titus. Timothy is a young pastor in Ephesus. Titus is a young pastor in Crete. We've already seen he's addressed a number of things about what a a healthy church looks like. But I want you to remember, these aren't just Paul's opinions or his preferences for how church should be. These are God's own standards for what a healthy church looks like. And some of the things that we've already noticed, we have saw that, that Paul wrote to Titus and said that everyone, absolutely everyone who's a Christian, uh, who's a part of this church, is absolutely necessary. You're vital. You're important. It's important that all of us are completely engaged and involved if we're to carry out the mission that God has for us as a church. And then last week, we saw him write to Timothy and say that it is incredibly important for every Christian in the church to, to discipline themselves and to really desire to be a faithful example of what it looks like to believe on Christ. We looked at that stamp and how that stamp is a, a great representation of the design that God had for us, that we would look like Jesus. So that when people in, interact with us, what we say with our lips and what we do with our lives tells people who Jesus really is and what the church is really about and, and what it means to be a safe person. And whether you realize it or not or want it or not, that's just always true. What you say with your lips and do with your life does shape other people's perspective on who Jesus is and what we're about and what it means to be saved. And so be a good representation. That's all review, right? Today we'll zoom in and Paul's writing about leadership in the local church and what that is supposed to look like. God has a word on that too. God has a plan for how the local church would be led. So you got your Bible. Some of you already turned to 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll look at a couple of other passages if you want to mark it and follow along. Or we'll hit them on the screen. Sometimes when I'm up here I can be a little preachy preachy. Today I will be a little more teachy teachy. And if that makes no sense to you at all just trust me and go with me on this. We're going to look at a lot of words and and a lot of definitions today. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at another leadership role in the church, that of deacons. What are they? What are they supposed to do? What's the spirit and the heart and the boundaries of deacons in the church? But today, we're looking at this biblical role called elders. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you got it ready? Verse 1, Paul writes and says, It is a trustworthy statement If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. I want to pause here because we don't use the word overseer. That's not in our vocabulary. That's a very strange word for our church to say we have overseer, right? So I want to talk to you about the language the Bible uses to describe the biblical role of elder because there are actually multiple words that are used in the New Testament. They're used over and over again and interchangeably to describe one person or persons who, who hold a kind of role, a particular responsibility in the church. And we see in 1 Timothy 3 this word 
overseer. And the partner text of this in the pastoral epistles is Titus 1, 5 through 9. And there, uh, Titus is told to appoint elders in all the cities of the island of Crete. And in both of these cases, they're meant to, to convey the same person or the same role, though they're different Greek words. And in fact, there are three Greek words that are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament to describe the role of elder. The words are episkopos, presbuteros, and poimino. And I, I want you to see these and how they work together because I think they will help us today in understanding the role of the elder. The first one, overseer, is important because it's, it's in the text we're studying today and we want to understand the, the text that we're studying. And the word is overseer. It's episkopos. It's a word that's used here and then four other times in the New Testament to refer to the elder, but they call him here the overseer because it's meant to designate the kind of work the elder is doing They're to guide and oversee and to protect and to lead the church in a particular manner. It's here and for other times. That word might make more sense when you see another word used for it, and it's the one that's used in Titus 1. Uh, It's presbuteros. It's 72 times in the New Testament. This is the word that's used. 57 of those times it's referring to the role, the specific leadership role in the church of the church elder, and it means literally a position of leadership in the church, someone who has wisdom and is to lead with that wisdom. And then there's the third word, poimino. It means to feed or to shepherd, which I think gives a color or a tone to the way an elder is to lead. It's not simply an administrative role. It's a a role of nurturing and caring and guiding and feeding the church. And and when you see these all come together, they begin to paint a, a beautiful picture of the way God has ordained and organized leadership for the church. I'm going to go to Acts 20. If you want to mark and hold there, just follow with me. Acts 20, you'll remember a few weeks ago at the end of of 1 John, uh, we had that story where Paul was in Ephesus. He had first brought the gospel uh, in its full presentation to Ephesus, and there was a riot. There was chaos. There were Christians being dragged out into the street and beaten. And, And at this moment, there's, remember, Demetrius and the silversmiths and the idols and all of that was going on. People were fearing for Paul's life, and so they whisked him out of Ephesus as quick as possible. And in that riot, people even lost their minds, and they had no clue why they were even gathering and what they were mad about. But they were yelling and threatening and violent, and so he was taken south of Ephesus to a place called Miletus. That's where we are in Acts 20. Miletus. From there, he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. He sent messengers to bring the elders from Ephesus down to Miletus to meet with him. And when they get there, if you read the next few verses, he reminds them of what his ministry to them was all about and how he carried it out and how it was always, always centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wouldn't be distracted by other things. It always came back to Jesus plus nothing is everything. And he told them, I taught you boldly, I spoke boldly in declaration of the gospel, but I was always humble in spirit, and I want you to remember that about my ministry with you. And then Paul, not knowing if he would necessarily ever return back to Ephesus, not knowing where the Lord would take him next, gives all of these gathered elders a solemn charge, almost as if, if I never see you again, I want to make very clear to you what your responsibility is in your churches in Ephesus. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things in order to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, you be on the alert. And we're going to talk about the specific charge more in a minute. But I want you to see the usage of these words I just showed you. Start with Acts 20 verse 17. He sent to Ephesus and called to himself the elders, the presbyteros of the church. And then 28, he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. And he adds to their function, remember your job is about people. He says to shepherd, poimano, the church of God. And I say this, and it's not the only place that it happens. I want you to see it again. Peter, the apostle, does it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders, presbyteros among you, to shepherd, poimano, the, fo- the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episcopeo, not under a compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be good examples the flock of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the point I want to make with this is not just that we have Greek words and sometimes it's good to recognize the diversity and the complementary way that they're used, but to recognize that this, by the use of these three words, it depicts different angles of viewing the same person, right? It is an official position of leadership that is recognized by the church and ordained by God It's there to oversee, give direction and guidance and leadership to the church. But it's about people. It's about people's lives and their growing faith and dependence on Jesus Christ. And their their growing faith and walking in the will and the way of Jesus in their life. That's what the role is about. You focus, you follow with me so far on that? Okay. So we have some context on on who we're talking about. I want to look at what is their charge? What is their job description? If it was put it on a help wanted poster on the front window of the church, what is the job that they're tasked with? I'm going to lay those two charges out, Paul's charge and Peter's charge. Let's look at them side by side and see if we can discover what their job is. Remember, he warns them with oppression from the outside and with the danger of false teaching from the inside. Here's your task. Be on guard for yourselves. Remember, Last week, watch your life and doctrine closely, for by them, persevere in these things, for by them you will be saved, and so will your hearers. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And Peter gives the charge to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Be on guard, shepherd, shepherd, oversee. In other words, in in my words for you today, the elders of the church are charged with this task. They are charged with the task to guide and to guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. That's the job description. It's the job responsibility of those who God calls to elder in the church, to guide and to guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. And that's a, a gravely important role both in their day in their time in the infancy of the church in its earliest days when they didn't have church history or a library full of commentaries to help them to understand the word of God they didn't have the Bible and 27 translations to choose from 
the Lord appointed people to help them walk faithfully with the Lord. Not just for their day, but that the church would grow in faithfulness then, but also carry on into the future. That we would be a part of a faithful church today that is still holding true to sound doctrine and to walking in a right way. 1 Timothy 3 is one of the places where you find the job qualifications. Job description, to guide and to guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. Qualifications, please see 1 Timothy chapter 3. You got it open still? 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Again, Paul writes, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And the word aspires here means to stretch out your arm and to grab it, to desire and reach out to gain that which you desire. And this is not a bad desire or a misplaced desire because Paul affirms it. He says it's a fine work that you would desire to do. But one qualification uh, for a person, a man who would be an elder, is that they desire to do so. They do so understanding and having a clear picture of the weight and the responsibility the grave responsibility of guiding and guarding the doctrine and the direction of the church now and into the future. And even knowing the responsibility and the weight, the gravity of it, they say, the Holy Spirit is, is, has turned my heart to carry that burden for the church. That's one qualification. Verse 2, Paul says, an overseer then must be above reproach. That word literally means blameless, which is a massive standard, Right? Uh, it also means not censurable. And we know something about what it means to censure because we've had a recent president censured. What it means to censure is that something in someone's behavior is either circumspect or it's just plain wrong. And people have gotten together and said, yeah, we all disagree and disapprove of this behavior that has been taken by this person. Now, we, we saw last week every Christian is called to be a faithful example, a good example of what it means to believe on Christ, right? And our, our character and our faith and our hope and our purity and our love. We looked at all of these things and our words and our deeds. But elders are to be above reproach. Nothing in their life should be up for censure. All of it has to be submitted to the cross of Christ. Every bit of it has to be submitted to the direction of the word of God. All of it must be humbled before truth and before sound doctrine. Character. That's what Paul's saying here. Character, as much more than competency and skill, is at the top of the list for, for qualifications of being an elder in the church. Do you get that? Now, Paul, he continues, he says, uh, if you aspire to be an overseer, you should be the husband of one wife. And I'll pause here again. Because we have seen people misuse and abuse this line in its expression and its practice in churches. And you've probably seen that. Some people have said, well, this means polygamy. Because in their culture, in their context, da, 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 and it's just some blog or some article they found one time that they're repeating. And, and probably isn't faithful to, to sound study or sound thinking about it. It certainly might include polygamy. I mean, it will certainly include that. But that's probably not the main thing on Paul's mind as he writes this sentence. Other people have said, well, it has to do with divorce and remarriage. You can't be divorced and, and remarried and, and be an elder. i tell you what I think it, it means. Um, there's a, a translator, Kenneth Woost, who wrote a translation of the original text. He said, or suggested, it ought to be read like this. He said, it ought to be a one-wife sort of man or 
a one-woman sort of man. And I think that makes sense because what it's speaking to is faithfulness, fidelity, solemn commitment, devotion is what's on Paul's mind when he writes the sentence. And I can give you a whole number of reasons why that would be important for a Christian leader, for an elder to have fidelity and faithfulness if they're married. One practical, pragmatic reason is because every one of us have seen sex scandals and infidelity in a leader's life crush their testimony, ruin their ministry, and destroy the reputation of their church, hurting the reputation of Jesus Christ and leaving a wake of countless hurts in other people's lives, those who would follow them. We've seen that, right? Not just in in church leaders and pastors' lives, we've seen that in leaders uh, of any sort. And so a pragmatic and practical reason why Paul would say a qualification for being being an elder is that you're a one-woman sort of man is because we shouldn't have uh, by emotional affair, by looking this way, by kind of being torn between various relationships or not having a solemn commitment that you're nurturing all of the time, we might crush our reputation, our ministry, the church's reputation and damage the reputation of Jesus Christ. It's practical. I'll give you what I think is an even more important reason. It's a gospel reason. It's because the Bible over and over again teaches that marriage between a husband and wife is meant to teach you something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's meant to teach you to declare something about the relationship between Jesus and his church. We're called the bride of Christ, right? Ephesians 5 is a very good example of this where Paul writes about love and respect. Probably familiar with this passage where he writes to husbands and to wives, and he, he talks about how you should love one another and how you should, you, you should respect one another, and that flows out of your dependence on, on the Holy Spirit, out of your fear of God the Father, and in relationship with Jesus Christ, depicting how He controls your life, how the love of Christ controls you. And Paul goes on and on and talks about a one flesh union and, and, and being like one person, you're so intimately connected with one another. But at some point, he gets to this moment where it kind of feels like Paul is concerned he might have lost his audience with all of these words and instructions and illustrations. And so he says this in in Ephesians 5.32. He says, this mystery is great, but when I talk about marriage, I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And then he says, husbands and wives, look, if I lost you at any point, just do this. I'll summarize it. Go out and represent Jesus Christ and his love for the church and the church and its love for Jesus Christ in the way that you view and you do your marriage. That's what you should go and do. And I think that's the the more significant reason why Paul would say that if you aspire to be an elder, you should be the husband of one wife. Be a one-woman man because it matters how you view marriage and how you do marriage. It depicts to the world something about the relationship of Jesus and the church. The Bible teaches us that. It's meant to teach us in that faithful one flesh union something about our union with Jesus Christ. It even teaches us something about the intimacy between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If we're completely faithful and have complete fidelity within our our marriage. So Paul says, if you're married, well, then you've got to be faithful and in no way straying. And then he adds, you should be temperate, sober-minded. You should be prudent, means self-controlled and not impulsive, acting rashly. He says, you should be respectable, which means modest in your behavior. You should be hospitable. That means generous. 
to guests and to outsiders. And then he says you should be able to teach. I want to elaborate on that one. What does able to teach mean? Well, I'll tell you what I don't think it means. I don't think it means that you're an excellent orator, that you're the best monologuer in the room, so you are the one who is able to teach. We have probably put way too much stock today in the modern church into people who are flashy and skilled at making speeches. And we will overlook bad behavior and bad doctrine if someone is, is you know, clever and easy to follow or funny or skilled in some way. But consider this, when Paul is writing this to the earliest of churches, they didn't line up like this in the room when they assembled. They didn't have a guy standing in the lights with, with all kinds of colors and a TV beside him and rows of people sitting quietly listening until he decides he's done giving his monologue. That's not the way that they, they gathered. By the way, in case you're concerned that we aren't doing things in a New Testament manner, they also didn't have Bibles in their hands and they didn't wear pants. So some things have changed in modern days, and that's okay. It's good that we have a Bible and that, you know, I'm not wearing a dress right now on this stage. But when they gathered, it did look differently into the culture that Paul was writing to. One of my favorite places giving us a picture of what the assembly looked like in the first church is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 26. It says, when you assemble... Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all of these things be done for edification. You see that? Probably looks more like what happens when your, your life group gets together. Everyone brings a psalm, a hymn, a prayer, a praise. All of this is meant to be done in an edifying way for the church, glorifying God the Father and thanking Jesus for our salvation, right? They didn't have a let's all sit quietly while this guy talks for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 75 minutes. I don't know what it will be today. I'll let you know soon. Um, so what does this mean when Paul writes able to teach? Well, if we look at the partner passage in Titus 1.9, I think that that might help a little bit. He elaborates there. He says these elders, if they aspired to be an elder, they should be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both, listen to these things, exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You see that? This is defining for us what able to teach means. I'm going to give you an example of this. I had a friend reach out to me a couple of weeks ago, a good friend I've known for, for two, almost three decades. And he said, hey, I listened, I watched this video of this guy. It was amazing. I loved it. And I wanted, wanted you to watch it and tell me what you think about it. He, he quotes so many scriptures and so many ideas. And, and I want you to tell me what you think. The guy's name is Jordan Peterson. Now, I've heard of Jordan Peterson, and, and I've looked him up before, and I know a little bit about him. He's a very popular psychologist and philosopher. He's a best-selling author that a lot of people are listening to today. And so I go, well, okay, I'll, I'll watch your video, and I'll watch the video. And this is something Peterson said. He quotes Nietzsche, and he talks about how, uh, how a person lives and who they are is marked by how they can handle truth. And this is what Peterson then says. He says, there's a great Western tradition. Listen carefully. There's a great Western tradition that the truth is the way and the path of life. And no man comes to the Father except by the truth. And the truth does set you free. It destroys everything in you that isn't worthy. And my friend said, man, I mean, he didn't say Jesus outright, but... 
But you, he, you can tell how he loves the scriptures and he just, he sounds like a believer. And I said, man, he sounds like an antichrist. Do, do, you, do you see it though there? He takes two passages, two lines that Jesus himself said when he was walking on this earth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And then John 8, he he says, the message I've given you is the truth. In this truth, if you'll believe it, it will set you free. Two passages spoken by Jesus about the person and the work of Jesus, but he has ripped Jesus from the text. He's made it a Western tradition, and he said it's about the truth. Living in your truth. Living in your truth is the way and path of life. It gets you to the Father. I don't know what he means by that. He didn't tell us. And it does set you free if you just live in your truth, whatever, whatever that means. You see what he's done? I think that's the perfect example uh, of what we learned about in 1 John and in the pastoral epistles about the spirit of the Antichrist. It's taking something that sounds right and probably theologically, even if, as my friend heard it, he was filling in the gaps unconsciously with good, sound theology that he knows. He's like, oh, well, of course he means this, but that's not what this man was saying. And many people will hear this and never surrender to Jesus Christ because of it. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. And that is an example of what I I believe Paul means by able to teach. You follow me on that? It's not about making a great monologue. It's about with discernment, humility, and boldness being able to go, that's not it. And here's why. Because the truth is this. It's what the Bible says. Sound doctrine is this. Don't go that way. That is dangerous. You should not follow this man. I think that's what Paul means when he says, able to teach. Verse 3 He continues, he says, uh, one who aspires to be an elder should not be addicted to wine or pugnacious. Anybody use the word pugnacious in a sentence this week? No, I had to look it up. I mean, it's one of those, I had a Chinese pug as a kid. I thought it had something to do with dogs. Um, That's why I had a dog illustration this morning. It, It means ready to fight, quarrelsome and argumentative. And that's why he responds on the contrary but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. To Titus, he says they should be, not have a fondness for sordid gain. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. To Titus, he adds, he should have children who believe. Let me ask you a question. Can you control, I ask parents in the room, just if you're a parent, I'll let you answer first. Can you control your children's desire and willingness to follow and walk in the ways of Jesus. No, and probably every one of you here have either seen or you have experienced for yourself a parent who truly desires to honor the Lord in the way that they parent and to to walk their kids, to teach their kids in a way that they would love the Lord and they would find life in Jesus Christ and they would walk in His ways and yet see that child turn away and walk away from faith. It's painful. Right? We've seen it. We've experienced it. That's something you can't control. Right? What can you control, though? I think what he says at the end of verse 4 illuminates us to this. He says, in the way that you run your household, you do it with all dignity. And that phrase, when you look it up, it means with all gravity and honesty. Or in other words, an elder should take his discipling role in the home with all seriousness and with all integrity. 
that has to be a primary ministry and he should have integrity in discipling in his home. Why is that? Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how is he going to take care of the church of God? Or in other words, if you're not going to do it there, you're not going to do it here. That was the testing ground. It's the proving ground. It's where, where you learn what it means to treat people like a family and to raise them up to walk in the way of the Lord. And it's my primary role. It is my primary ministry as the pastor of this church to pastor in my home first. It is. I don't always do it well, but I aspire to do it with all dignity, with honesty and integrity. And if I'm not modeling what it means to be a believer, and if I'm not able to teach in my home, then I should be off of this stage and out of this role completely because that is more important. God love you. I love you. But that is my primary calling in my home. So elders must first with all dignity, seek to disciple and to, to model Christ-like living in their home. Verse 6, he adds, and they should not be a new convert. That word means not newly planted. Here's why. He says, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Paul knows that it's easy to get caught up in your own hype when you're a leader. Does that make sense? To, to begin to judge yourself and your success or your failure, your identity, and the identity of those you lead based upon the things you're doing or not doing, based upon your strengths or weaknesses, based upon your vision or lack of vision. It's, a, it's really easy to get caught up in your own hype and think it's about you. So he says it shouldn't be someone who's a newly planted believer. He needs time to be watered and to grow in the, under the sun and to mature before called upon to lead in this way. Verse 7 and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, so if this was a, a poster posted on the front of our church building, it would say, uh, you know, help wanted, job now for, for elders in the church. Elders wanted to guide and to guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. For qualifications, asterisk, Look up 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9. That's where you find your qualifications. Now, I, I, this morning, I just wanted us to have a clear reading of the text. And I know I did this differently than normal, just kind of making a running commentary as we go. But my concern this morning was first that we would really understand that there is a, um, a word from God about local leadership and local church bodies. He has a design for that. He has a plan for that. And he has clear instructions about what the role is and how it should be carried and what the qualifications are. And when I read this text and others like it, I treat it like every other text I come to when I read the Bible, the same way that, that you and I both should treat the Bible every time we come to it. We come to the Bible and we read seeking to have a greater understanding and relationship with God just as he is, as he truly is. And we read, read seeking to have understanding and a, and a greater experience in abundant life just as God intended for us to. We come seeking understanding here, seeking relationship here, and seeking transformation in our whole life. We should always, when we read the Bible, ask the questions, have I had the right picture of who God is and what he wants and what he loves? And am I reflecting the right image that God desires me to reflect with my life and with my lips and in the way that I, I carry on in this world? And when we come to a passage like 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, it's exactly the same thing, but where we begin to apply this is to our own perspective and understanding and practice of how we do leadership in our local body 
the church. And this passage and the others like it have had my attention as long as I've been in ministry. They need to if I'm going to be a faithful minister. Um, over the last you know, 15 years or so, I've, I've paid more and more uh, attention to them. I know that some of you who've been at Legacy more than eight years, more than the time that I've been here, you already have had lots of great conversations and prayers and, and discussion about our leadership and how it should function and, and what is most harmonious with Scripture. And over the last two years, I want you to know that our leadership team and our church staff has devoted deep focus, much time to prayer, to Bible study, to conversation, to reading books, to reviewing and learning what it, does it look like and God's picture for healthy leadership in, in the local church. And are we harmonious, are we in harmony with the scriptures in regards to the way that we lead? So I'm, I'm happy to report to you one thing. I'm happy to report to you that we are not operating in a pattern of sin in the way that we lead. That's good news. We, you, can, you can go, yes, thank goodness. Because if you thought he was building to, we're in deep trouble here, then take that off the table. You can breathe and relax for just a moment. I'm not saying we do everything perfectly. I'm saying we're not operating in a pattern of sin in the way that our church has been leading. But I'd also tell you that we've agreed that we're not operating according to best practices uh, in, in regards to the normative past, uh, patterns and, uh, and, and directions of the New Testament church. That, that there is a difference between the way we lead and the way the New Testament church seems to be designed. And here's what I mean, is the early church, the first century church in the New Testament, the normative pattern that's seen is that each local body has a plurality of elders sharing spiritual leadership to guide and to guard the doctrine and the direction of the church and that no single church had the majority opinion of one elder leading and guiding them. And I could read you dozens of passages. I won't do that, but I want to put some on the screen here. This is a few, a sampling. I got them to where they kind of lined up here, and I want you to take a picture of this. Grab your phone out and do it because it's on you. It is your responsibility to check our work. And here is a small sampling of the New Testament work that begins to show us an example of how the early churches had more than one elder leading in the local congregation. In every one of these instances and more, elders is in the plural tense, not in the singular. In fact, that word I shared with you earlier, presbyteros, it's used 57 times in depiction of elders in the New Testament. And each time it's in the plural sense, not the singular, except for a moment where John goes, I'm an elder. He's not saying I'm the only elder. He's saying I'm one of those. And then Peter does the same thing. He goes, elders, yeah, I'm one of those also. It's the normative pattern in the New Testament to see the local body led by multiple elders. And a review of the New Testament shows that was the pattern of the apostles. They would appoint multiple elders for a local congregation. Paul would come in and in an apostolic work, he'd break new ground for the gospel. He'd preach and teach the gospel. He'd disciple people. He'd raise up elders. He would leave them to guide and guard the doctrine and the direction of the church as he went on to the next place. But over and over again, what you see is multiplicity in leadership. And why that matters to us is because we are a single elder-led church. And some of you are like, whoa, What? And some of you are like, so what? And, and frankly, for me, I grew up in a, a church that was a single elder church. It's the only thing I, I knew until I moved out of my parents' house. The first two churches I worked in were single elder-led churches. I don't believe it's a pattern of sin to do that, but I don't think it, it's in the best harmony with the practice of the early church. 
It wasn't until about 2006 when we planted a church that I first began going, what is this concept of plurality of elders and what would that look like? It wasn't until I went and served at a larger church that had uh, elders in existence that I began to really understand and appreciate what, what was going on with having a true shared leadership. And some of you, you go, well, well hang on, Kevin. I, I thought we have a le- church leadership team. Isn't that, aren't they like the elders, the church leadership team? Well, I'd tell you to go to them and ask them. And, and to a person, I, I bet you this, I bet you this, if you go to anyone who serves on the team now or has in the, in the past, that they're going to use some kind of language that depicts we give advice, but we are not authority. They share the operational authority. They make sure that we're, we're being responsible and stewarding the resources God has given us. They give counsel or advice to me. They support me in prayer. They are vital. They've been vital to my life from the day I arrived as people who support and, and uphold me in, in every way. But they'll say to you, Yes, I give advice and I have thoughts and opinions, but no, my job is not to guide and guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. Nobody ever told me that. That's not the responsibility that I've I've had. Some of you go, well, what about the staff pastors? Don't we have several pastors on staff? Aren't they just the same thing as elders too? We just don't use that language. I'd say, no, actually we use the word pastor. We've chosen to use that term to signify the kind of work that they're supposed to do. It's to remind them that their job isn't to be task-oriented just accomplishing certain ministry programs and getting those check marks done, but it's to be people work that they do. The, the word pastor is used in their title to remind them that their job is to be functionally about shepherding and caring for and meeting the needs of people through whatever vehicle the nuance of their job demands of them. We do hold them to the same Christian conduct standards that elders are held to, but we don't put the same responsibility on them. We don't tell them your job is to guide and guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. We still operate as a single elder church in regards to that role. And some of you go, well, geez, that seems a little bit, um, <laughs> doesn't, seem, doesn't seem right. In fact, I've had this conversation with a few people over the years, and they've looked at me and said, well, Kevin, who is our elder? And I go, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but, you know, it is me. And some of you go, well, that's just scary now that I know that. And I go... <laughs> That explains very much the the weight that I feel when it comes to recognizing that. I I feel that weight. We are by constitution, by our history, and by our practice a single elder church. But our leadership team and our church staff have complete agreement that the time has come for us in order to align more harmoniously with the scriptures, that we would transition our leadership structure from a single elder-led church to a church that's led by a plurality of elders whose job is to guide and guard the doctrine and the direction of the church. And I fully, as your pastor, believe this is the right way to go and it is the right time for us to address this. Think about this. Never in American history has the Bible, its teaching, sound doctrine, biblical ethics been more out of place in the world Never has it been in more dispute than it is today. Even our churches, never has there been more division and more controversy over who are we and what are we supposed to be about and what is the gospel. Never has there been such a lack of clarity about what the gospel is and what it means to be a gospel people or to walk as a saved people in this world. I think it's prudent for us. I believe fully, I'm convicted, it's prudent for us 
to address this in our leadership structure as a church, that we would move from being a single elder church to a plurality of elders church, effectually (laughs) giving me a demotion. I mean, I realize that. But having a true shared spiritual leadership. And I I, I believe this. I I believe the experience within it withholds greater joy, greater capacity, greater blessing, greater ability, greater example for the community of faith to follow of what it means to have unity and harmony in humility under Christ, the great shepherd, our true and perfect elder. And so I want to tell you kind of how the next days will look for us as a church as we face this. You didn't know you were coming into a business meeting, did you? Surprise, this is what we do around here. Family meeting, we'll call it that. So what we're going to do is follow the pattern we've followed in the past when it comes to leadership or any kind of changes we've experienced together. And I, I remember very clearly sitting at the Starbucks at, at Coit and, um, and, and Legacy with the former pastor of this church, Gene Wilkes, just a few months after I arrived um, in 2013, sitting there and, and talking about all the changes he experienced in his time as the pastor and thinking about the kind of changes we might experience. And he said, there's a quote that I've held on to for a long time. He said, leadership is moving people at a rate they can handle. You hear that? All of life has changed. And and leadership requires moving people along in, in, in change. That's a part of life. He said, I don't remember where I heard the quote, where I got it from, but I believe it. And I believe it too. And that's the pattern I've tried to follow as we've gone through all kinds of experiences together as a church, you know, in terms of where we serve and how we serve and how we gather and where we meet, for crying out loud. We moved just a few years ago. We've desired to move people at a rate they can handle. That means that we're moving in the, Lord, in the way the Lord would lead us, but we're all moving together and leaving no one behind. So what I want to do is invite you into the experience and the conversation that we've been having already in our leadership for uh, the church for years now. I want to invite you in for prayer, invite you in for discussion, for questions. I want to invite you in that we would seek to have one mind and one heart and have the unity of the Spirit as a church, that as we experience change in the desire to be more in harmony with the, the Bible's depiction of church leadership, that we would do so with the confidence that we walk together as a church body and we're not leaving an arm or a hand or a leg or a toe back behind, right? And so what we've done is we've planned kind of a, without an end date, kind of a, a next few months of having more and more conversation about this. Uh, one thing I've done is we've purchased a book for every family in the church, one for every family. They're in the lobby when you leave today. It's a book called Why Elders? what book I have sitting up here. It looks like this. It's a brief book. We've read several and and much bigger books. This book is a very good book because it just says, here's the Bible. This is what this means. Here's the Bible. This is what this means. And it's only four chapters long. It's not a hard read. We bought one for every family in the church. And inside that book, when you get it on your way out, there's a card in there. That card has a QR code, which leads you to our website where it says legacychurch.org slash elders. I've written a biblical position paper on on church leadership, on elders, that that talks about our history as a church, Legacy Church, how we got where we are today, what the Bible says, and where we believe we should be heading in the future so that we would have a greater New Testament church picture in our experience 
that we would have greater partnership and greater accountability in the days ahead for whatever challenges the world may face. Because this isn't just about 2021, this is about Legacy Church in generations to come. There's a position paper there. Justin has written a discussion guide that goes along with this book. If you're in a life group, we're asking all life groups for the next few weeks to walk through this book together a chapter at a time. And Justin's written a discussion guide that will help guide your time for that. If you're not in a life group, you can grab the discussion guide and just use it as a a book guide as you read along with questions for review and for contemplation. We have uh, in there a few other tools and resources on that web page that will help you to begin to investigate for yourself. Not, don't just take my word for it, but begin to investigate. Lord, what is your word and what is your will and how the local body should be led? And then we're going to have an opportunity for small gatherings to happen, just like we've done in the past when we had big changes. Invite you to come to the table and we will have conversation and we will have prayer and we will seek to walk in unity together. Same page, you with me? I've got one ask for you. We'll announce this week uh, some, some dates for when you can come to uh, gather together and talk about this and what it means and, and what it will look like. I'm going to ask you two things. If you're in a life group, to attempt to sign up as a life group, that your life group would come together. That way the conversation you're having as a life group can extend into that time. And two, here's a big ask. I know it's a big ask. But I need you to, write, to read the, the position paper that I wrote on this before you come to that meeting. And here's why. Because a lot of the questions you have are probably already answered in that paper. And the questions that aren't answered in that paper, you'll only think of them after you've read the paper. Does that make sense? It leads you to be a greater participant that night and us to have a deeper and more uh, helpful conversation on our path to, to transition as a church. Make sense? All right. Good. Somebody said yes. That's one person says yes, and the rest of you go, I have no clue. I just heard there was coffee, and my friend was here, and I don't know what I walked into today. Let me do this. I want to end. I think the best way for us to end today, I want to invite our church leadership team to come up. Um, These are, are folks who week in and week out are praying for Legacy Church, and they are checking me, making sure that I'm healthy and uh, in the way that I think, in the way that I serve. Y'all come, let's meet me down here. Um, I'm going to grab a mic, and then I'll meet you right there. I'm going to ask our leadership team just to pray for us as a church this morning, because in one way it seems like this is, oh, it's just administrative task, but in every way we're seeking to walk in obedience to the Scriptures and and, and trusting in the Holy Spirit to guide us. So I'm going to ask them to close our time in prayer this morning, then we'll sing one more song and go. Who wants to pray first this morning? Linda, thank you. I think it's on. Lord, I just thank you for our time that we have together. I thank you for the leadership of this church throughout the years that it's been a church. And I thank you for men and women who have led and who have sought to be the kind of church that you have for us, Lord. So as we enter this time of discussion about some changes and the way our leadership will go forward, Lord, I pray for unity in the body. I pray for peace and for discernment as we try to follow the model that you've set for the New Testament church. I just pray this in your name. Father, we're so thankful for you, for your word, for your precious son, for your Holy Spirit to guide and guard us in biblical leadership. And we pray and are so thankful for Pastor Kevin, 
for the way he delivers your message to us and his leadership and just his humble heart. We're just so appreciative that he is has the desire to have other elders walk alongside him and share accountability with each other to follow you and lead in the best way that we can. And we pray, Father, for our future elders as you prepare their hearts. Just ask that you be with them as they evaluate their calling on their life, their role, just what their commitment will be, and any adjustments they need to make to their schedules uh, to serve you best. And I want to pray for the elders' spouses and their families because um, they are called to this role too. It's a, it's a partnership and the support that's needed. And I just want to commend Lindsay on the great model that she is as an elder's spouse and the leadership that she provides for our church and in her home. And I want to pray for all of our pastors, the staff, and the leadership team and future leadership team members, just as we prepare to serve you, that you give us the words and the message to follow you. Just give us wisdom and discernment and direction and boldness and perseverance. And then I want to pray for our church body and our life group leaders and the life groups just as we gather together that will rest in you, that will take this time to really understand and read and come to the small group meetings and ask questions. Just we have so many differences and different backgrounds, and I just hope that the beauty of all the different perspectives come together and that we leave with a truly unified, holy message and the way that we act out what we do in our community and that we bring others to serve you. And just to add that we're so thankful, Father, in a world that we live in like this, that we have you as a constant and that you have given us great biblical examples of elders and the models and the leaders here. And I just lift up all of these prayers to glorify you. We love you. And it's in your precious son, Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful opportunity um, just to um, further your kingdom, to do what God has called us to do um, in this world of darkness. And just thank God that Kevin um, has the, the humbleness to realize that he can't do it all by himself and that he, he needs other uh, elders to go alongside him because he wants to steward the church, uh, which he is called to lead um, the best way he can. And so I just thank God for his spirit, thank God for, for his humbleness to, to realize that and to know that to do the best that he is called to do is, is a shared leadership. We all have a part to play. And uh, Father, just uh, bless these upcoming meetings and just bless these, um, anybody who has, you know, reservations or anything that, that we can talk, talk, talk and um, communicate with each other and listen. And that way, you know, that we'll be all one accord. And um, because this is what the Spirit is calling Kevin to do. And I think that that is the, the right move. I think we're, it's, it's 
the Bible states is the precedence. And so if we are Bible believers and we're trying to follow the leadership of Christ, then we should go and follow the source, which is the Bible and how, how it was done in the Bible. So I just pray that this, these discussions going forward will be meaningful and spirit-led and just let your Holy Spirit guide us. And then, you know, at the end of the day, when, when Kevin is standing in front of you, Lord, you're going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because you steward legacy properly. So I just lift these up in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we'll end this morning just with this word. Um, we're broken people who are often twisted and confused. We reflect Paul in Romans 7, wants to do the right thing and just doesn't know how sometimes. And so that's why no matter what we do, we're so grateful that it's not on us, that there is a true and better elder than Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, who is the true intermediary between people and, and God Father, who understands our struggles who was tempted in every way yet did not sin and gave himself for our life, rose from the dead that we might share in his life. And regardless of how we decide and how we lead and how we brand and how we plan, all of our life is owed to you, Jesus. We seek to honor and glorify you and thank you with our lips and with our lives. To you be the glory in Jesus' name.